Um, <laughs> that took a while to get up to the front. Um, the reading is from John. So you grab a Bible and turn to page 1047. There's actually two readings, and they're both from John. Um, but the first one is from John chapter 8, starting at verse 31. And that's on page 1047. Is it not? 74. 1074. There we go. Starting at verse 31. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants, and we have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you're looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your own father. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. For there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong belong to God. Um, And the second reading is John 14. Um, starting chapter, uh, sorry, chapter 14, starting at verse 5, and I think it's on page 1082, but could be wrong. (laughs) So starting at verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even, if, even after I've been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father, and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father, living in me, who is doing his work. 
Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. This is the word of the Lord. Great, thanks, Joe. Let's pray as we come to this word. So, Father, I pray that you would speak truth to us through your true word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Great. We're in a series on foundational truths, and this sermon is the second in this series of three. The title of the sermon is The Truth Will Set You Free which we get from John 8, verse 32. And if you're in uh, John 14, just flick back to John 8. We're going to start in John 8, and then we'll spend some time in 14. But it'd be helpful uh, to be in John 8. For those of you who like structure and have played the game uh, Two Truths and a Lie, our structure is going to be similar to that today, except we're going to do two lies and a truth. So we'll have lie number one and lie number two, And then we'll hit the truth and have a look at that. And our first lie concerns the age of authenticity. The age of authenticity. I'm going to define that slightly later. um, But as we get into the section on this first lie, I feel it's necessary for me to confess something to you. And that is, earlier in the week, I was browsing through the kitchen, uh, getting a cup of tea, when I encountered a book. And it was this... uh, brightly colored book, in fact, which I picked up. And I find sometimes when I'm prepping a sermon, the Lord literally puts something in my way uh, for me to pick up and, and have a look at and, and explore. And as I explore it, he speaks to me through whatever he's put there to help me. And this book is the one that came to my attention, and it's called The Rules Do Not Apply. Uh, it's written by a journalist called Ariel Levy. And in fact, she's a journalist for the New Yorker magazine. Really, really uh, interesting person. And I, as I was reading through it, in fact, I managed to read through the whole book during the week. By the way, if this is your book, I'd love to give it back to you uh, after the sermon. I, I offered it after the morning service and no one claimed it, which means either someone's too embarrassed to get it back or it's someone in the evening service or as a guest. Uh, I'm so sorry for nicking your book, by the way. Um, but please do claim it back afterwards. So uh, through reading this book, I find out that Ariel Levy is a, a journalist for the New Yorker magazine. In fact, her, her first assignment was about a group called the Van Dykes, which are a women's separatist group in the States. They go around in vans, and they only stop on land that belongs to women. Uh, and that is her first assignment. In fact, she just carried on in that vein from there, Uh, picking up on these really out-there stories. And I feel that she embodies the age of authenticity. The age of authenticity can be explained as, if it feels right, then it is. If it feels right, then it is. And her book is fascinating. She speaks candidly about the lies in her life and the lies in the lives of those around her. In fact, almost every single one of the major characters in this book lies to her, or she lies to them. 
So she gets married in what she calls a fake marriage to another woman called Lucy. She calls it a fake marriage because by law she isn't allowed to be married. But she also calls it a fake marriage because there's so much falsehood in their relationship. Very soon she finds out that her spouse is lying to her. She's got an alcohol addiction. And at one particular time, she gives, us, gives up this alcohol addiction and is sober for a while. But that time doesn't last very long at all. And very soon, she's back into this alcohol addiction. And Ariel says to her, she literally feels like she's going mad around Lucy. Because she feels something is wrong, but she wants to believe her, even though she's being lied to. In fact, Ariel lies to Lucy as well. She has two and a half years in an affair with a man. In fact, it was a woman, and, and this uh, woman turned into a man. In fact, she went out with her when she was a woman. She was called Jen, and Jen becomes Jim. And when Jen was Jen, and Ariel was in a relationship with her, uh, Jim tried to control Ariel. Ariel thought that Jim was a changed person when he became Jim. But in fact, he's been hacking into her emails and writing emails to Lucy, who she's meant to be in a, in a fake marriage with. It's so messy. And it doesn't stop there. Uh, she, it's amazing how candid she is. It's incredible. Uh, she talks about how when she's in her 20s and early 30s with all her friends... They had this idea that it was possible to have as much sex as they wanted to with as many people as they wanted to. Sex could just be fun and be about lust. And she says they thought as soon as they needed and wanted to have children, they'd just be able to have children. But she gets into her late 30s with her friends, and her friends find out, in fact, that it's actually a lot more difficult in your late 30s to have children than they had told themselves. And so they're all struggling to have children. And then it comes to the point where uh, Ariel wants to have a child, and she makes that possible. And, and this is where her, her crumbling life really falls apart, and it's so sad to read. She ends up in uh, Mongolia, in Ulaanbaatu, where she's going to do an assignment that will take her into the Gobi Desert. But before she gets there, she's in a hotel room after supper. And unfortunately, at 19 weeks, she miscarries. And she writes this. It's, it's moving. She says, he was translucent and pink and very, very small, but he was flawless. His lovely lips were opening and closing, opening and closing, swallowing the new world. For a length of time I cannot delineate, I sat there awestruck, transfixed. Every finger, every toenail, the golden shadow of his eyebrows coming in, the elegance of his shoulders, all of it was miraculous, astonishing. I held him up to my face, his head and shoulders filling my hand, his legs dangling almost to my elbow. I tried to think of something maternal I could do to convey to him that I was his mother and that I had the situation completely in control. 
This little boy, the son of hers, is born at 19 weeks, and he couldn't survive 19 weeks. She was told that very soon after he was born. And he, he died very shortly afterwards. But it's, it's during this time that her life falls apart when she goes back to New York, back into her age of authenticity, her age of pro-choice, her age that understands believes, thinks that a child that is still in the womb is just the possibility of a child and isn't yet a human being. And the people around her can't grieve with her. But she knows that this boy that has been born to her was real and that she had been a mother for those brief hours. And in her world that falls down, that falls apart, with no one to grieve with her, she's driven to the only person who's known her as a mother, the South African doctor who had been there with Ulambati with her. And she ends up corresponding with him and wanting to go out there and to see him. She's holding on to this truth that she realizes with all the lies around her. And it's, it's fascinating and sad at the same time, this world of lies. In the Bible, we find out something very different to this uh, pro-choice world with regards to human beings. We're told by the psalmist that we're created in my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. In Luke 1, we're told that when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. The Bible doesn't differentiate between a born and an unborn human being in the same way that our age of authenticity, if it feels right, it is right, wants to. This age of authenticity... uh, which was coined, in fact, during the Romantic era, uh, has been transformed into into something of of, uh, post-truth in our world at the moment, which has come after post-modernism. Post-modernism tells us uh, that truth is personal. You can have a truth, and you can have a truth, and you can have a truth, and you can have a truth. And all of those truths can somehow be the truth. In the last couple of years, we've moved from that place into a post-truth world where truth doesn't exist. Writers will be telling us now and are telling us that there's no true narrative. All narratives are false. And this is nothing new. We've seen it in the age of authenticity in the Romantic period. And in fact, it goes much further back than that. We see it in John 18, verse 38, where Pilate, with the truth standing in front of him, asks the rhetorical question, what is truth? Rather than asking truth himself. So that's the first lie the age of authenticity. There's a second lie, and this one takes us into our text of John 8, which is 
I'm okay. I'm okay. So Jesus here is speaking to Jews who have believed in him. And he says, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. And the hold is this word abide or remain, which we see in the vine in chapter 15. If you hold to my teaching. And what is his teaching? His teaching is the word of truth. If you hold to my teaching, the word of truth, you are truly my disciples. You are really my disciples. What are disciples? We had a look at this a couple of weeks ago. The Talmudin, the followers of the rabbi, the ones who want to be with their teacher and become like their teacher and do as their teacher did. And then verse 32 gives us the then, as you follow him, As you hold to the teaching, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And these guys don't like what they hear. They really, really don't like it. They don't want to be labeled as those who aren't currently free. They believe, as the the people in the age of authenticity, that they are free, and they believe it for a slightly different reason. The rabbis of Jesus' time in Judaism uh, taught, as the commentator John Carson, as John Carson tells us, uh, that the study of the law made a man free. But the fourth gospel, he says, insists rather that the law points to Jesus. And so they answer, we are Abraham's descendants. We've never been slaves of anyone. And I love this response, because this includes a lie immediately. They're saying they've never been slaves of anyone. Is that true? Whose occupation are they currently under? Rome. They're currently under Roman occupation. Who else have they been slaves to? The Babylonians? The Syrians? The Greeks? And then there's Egypt. And, and Egypt is such an important part of the narrative of the people of God. Because it's a, it's a narrative that says, you are slaves who have been freed by the mercy of God. That's what it means to be the people of God. To be those who have been slaves who have been set free. Not those who gain their freedom by following rules. The rules only point to the fact that we fall short of God's standard. And Jesus carries on in verse 35. He says, Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Who is the son? Who is the one with a permanent place in the family? That is Jesus. And Jesus is offering these people freedom. If only they will know themselves as slaves who are coming to him for their freedom. And that's exactly why Jesus went to the cross. Why would Jesus have needed to go to the cross if we could have gained 
our freedom by following the law. Jesus goes to the cross because there's no way that we can meet God's standard. He goes to the cross to take away our shackles and to give us our freedom. If only we'll follow him as his disciples. And then as we go through the rest of the passage, we see it's possible to live under two fathers. There's God the Father, and there's the Father of lies. And in fact, when we are born, we are born under the Father of lies. Since Genesis 3, uh, since the fall, we are born into sin. As the psalmist tells us in Psalm 51 verse 5, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. But right from that time, even in the womb, our Heavenly Father desires a relationship with us and does everything to offer us that relationship so we can walk away from being under the Father of lies. And by the offer of the Son, come to our Father who loved us so much that he gave his Son for us. Down in verse 46, Jesus says, Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? And I find it incredible that in that time, in the first century, These guys, these Jews, piled everything at Jesus, trying to prove that he was a fake, trying to trick him up in what he said. And they all failed. They could not prove him guilty of sin. And and Jesus wants to say to them, look, if you chuck everything at me and it all fails, maybe there isn't a problem with me. Maybe the problem is with you. to say that as well to those in the age of authenticity. Maybe the problem is with us. Maybe the problem is that we're born into sin and we need Jesus to set us free. We're born in a place of lies. I find Ariel Levy absolutely incredible how honest she is about how we lie. I mean, I'd, I'd love to ask you the question, when last did you lie? Um, why do we lie? Why do we lie? She says, addicts lie. She says, this should not have been so difficult for me to understand. When I was addicted to lust, I lied all the time, sometimes to cover up my tracks and sometimes purely out of habit. That's the world that we live in when we're under the father of lies. So that's the second, the second lie is uh, that we'll be okay. I'm okay. The first one is the age of authenticity. The second one, I'm okay. Uh, Here's the truth. And for this one, we're going to turn to John 14. So, yeah, just flick forward uh, a little bit. And in John 14, Jesus is speaking to his own disciples. And Thomas says to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus replies to Thomas, Thomas, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. And one commentator says it's, it's possible because all of these words are so similar and, and mean uh, very similar things, it's, it's possible to say of it, um, Jesus is the true way that leads to life. But at the same time, all three of those stand independently. Jesus is the way, the way to the Father, the only way that we can get to the Father. We can't get to the Father by thinking we're okay, by trusting the laws. We can't get to the Father um, by, by doing our own thing. The, the way to the Father is through Jesus. He is the life. Without Jesus, there's only death. With Jesus, there's life and life to the full. And Jesus is the truth. I'd love you as an exercise when you're talking to your friends down the coffee shop or at church or at uni or whatever it is, to ask them a question, what is your definition of truth? Because I think so many in our age struggle to even define the word truth. I was chatting recently to a friend of mine who's a philosopher, and I asked him, uh, how do philosophers understand uh, truth? And uh, he said there are two different ways. One of them is the, the correspondence theory of truth. And this is that a statement is, uh, is, is the question of, does, does a statement reflect reality? And there's a yes or no answer. Does a statement reflect reality? There's a yes or no answer. That's part of how we understand truth. Uh, he said there's another way of understanding truth, which is fidelity, which means, are you being true to yourself? And, and I believe that, that Jesus was, in, was the truth in, 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 in those ways, in a, in a way, because he did reflect reality in, in who he was, the real true reality, and he was true to himself. But there's a different element of Jesus being the truth, and, 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 and in a way, it's, it's, it's so much more than that. Uh, one of the commentators says Jesus being the truth is, is a bit like saying Jesus was the good news in himself. But I, I wonder if the best way to explain it is, do you remember how in Ariel's life everything falls apart as she's surrounded by lies? As we come to Jesus and a relationship with him, he is the opposite of that. In Jesus, everything holds together. In Jesus, everything holds together. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says, if you really know me, you'll know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now, Jesus, speaking about the truth, has been, uh, has been using some of the imagery that we find in Exodus 30 to 36. And so, therefore, picking up on this imagery, Philip asks him, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough. In the same way that Moses in Exodus 33:18 says to God, show me your glory. And God passed in front of Moses. Show me the Father, and that will be enough. But Jesus responds to him, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been you such a long time? Everyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 tells us, The Son is the radiance of God's glory 
and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. If you have seen the Son, if you know the Son, then you have seen the Father as well. Okay, this is the time where we need to play a little game. This is two truths and a lie. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you two truths, and then I'm going to give you a lie. I don't know what order they're going to come in. Um, and after I've said them, I'm going to give you a choice of whether the lie was one, two, or three. So here's the first one. Uh, the first one is, is growing up in South Africa, I owned my own dinghy. Second one is that last year, my wife and I ran the Edinburgh Marathon together. And the third one is quite often on a Friday night, I enjoy going down to a club to do some break dancing. So who thinks the lie was number one? <laughs> Brilliant. Who thinks the lie was number two? And who thinks the lie was number three? Fantastic. Okay. There, there are a few of me, a few of you who know me, who, who know that I'm not the best dancer in the world, so break dancing is completely out. But, but, but the way that, that you knew that, if you knew that, was based on two things. Uh, one side of it was a relationship with, with me. So you know who I am, you've got a friendship with me, you know what I'm capable of. And then the second part of it was probably evidence. Maybe I've got a South African accent, that's true. Uh, so, so you thought that maybe that one is right. Or maybe you've seen me running and you thought maybe I could have done a marathon. Uh, so it's those two elements, relationship and evidence. And, and we see that coming through in, in this as well. Uh, chatting with, it with a friend, in fact, uh, recently, uh, he isn't a Christian, um, uh, having read a book with him called Saving Truth, uh, he said to me, do you know what, guy? Christians are great at, at tearing down the culture, showing where culture goes wrong, but they aren't all that good at showing evidence that Christianity, in fact, is true and holds up. So I want to give you some evidence for the truth and, and show you how we might start building a picture uh, for, for Jesus being the truth. So Jesus says, uh, he says, don't you believe that I'm the Father and that I'm, the Father's in, in me? The words I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father who is living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I'm the, in the Father and the Father is in me or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. So first he wants us to believe based on the relationship that we have with the Father. Just imagine if a friend came up to you and said that uh, they had to go to court because they had been convicted of murder. And you knew that person. You knew that they weren't capable of murder and they wouldn't have murdered someone you would be willing to give a testimony uh, on their behalf in court. And so the first one is, is, is believing based on the relationship. But he says, if you haven't quite got to that place of a relationship with me, and that is still growing, then at least believe on the basis of the evidence that you see. And the evidence is the works, it's the ergo, it's the, it's the miracles that Jesus performed. It's the healings. It's the demon possessions. It's the people who are raised from the dead. He says, believe based on the evidence. 
And then he says the most amazing thing. This is to his disciples. He says, very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I've been doing. And they'll do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. And I'll do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I'll do it. He's saying, and this is, this is incredible. He's saying because he's going to the Father, we're going to be able to pray to him and ask him by his power to do some of the things that he's been doing, like pray for people to be healed and they'll be healed. And those form part of our basis of evidence for Jesus being the truth. And this is where I want to encourage us to step up the boat, and I feel like I need to do this as well. We need to be praying for some more things that Jesus did and asking God to do them. Because as people see the, the evidence, the works of God around them, they'll be encouraged to take Jesus seriously as the truth and come into a relationship with him and know him to be who he is. And who he says he is. And we also know that we aren't going to do this by ourselves. But the Holy Spirit is given to us who believe. So that he grows in us as our relationship with him grows. So Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 22. He set his seal of ownership on us. And has put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit. Guaranteeing what is to come. So what kind of freedom do you want to live in? Do you want to live in the freedom of the age of authenticity? Whereby Ariel Levy's own testimony, everything crumbles down? Do you want to live in the freedom that the Jews of Jesus' time thought that they had under the law? With this understanding that everything's going to be okay? Do you want to live in a freedom with the truth? The truth who is a person. The truth who wants a relationship with you. The truth who doesn't leave you as orphans, but wants to work in you and alongside you by the spirit of truth in a world where we're able with him to do the things even that he did. I think that sounds like a pretty good offer. Let's pray.